Welcome to another episode of Horrorversary. This is the podcast that, well, celebrates horror movies, celebrating horror, or yes, as you can tell, celebrating horror movies and celebrating anniversaries. When you take a month off, these are the things that happen. Now, like I said, we have taken a month off because there were some scheduling conflicts, but we've got some seriously great guests tonight. And part of the reason why we have a great guest is we've got a great film to talk about. Now, if this is your first time listening to the show, things are very, very simple here. As I said, we're celebrating horror movies, so that's the tenet. We're only discussing horror movies. Second of all, they have to be having an anniversary. Now, we're not talking about the weird, oh, it's been 12 years, it's been 42, it's been 72 and a half, and we just want to celebrate. No, 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 we're talking about the big milestones when it comes to the 10s, the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. Because anytime you look back in the history of horror films, any year you find there is a movie that's well, you know, it's worth being raised up or looked at again. And there's something when you hit those milestones, that tens, that twenties and so on, that you have the reevaluation of it. Anytime you go onto the internet nowadays and you look at Twitter, you can go on basically any given week and you're going to see a film that hasn't been discussed for a couple of years. All of a sudden people are talking about, and it's usually because it's hitting one of those big milestones, especially when it comes to the 10s and 20s, because when it reaches that people decide this is the point that we need to, to have the cultural reevaluation of this film. Was it not big at the time? And has it grown in stature? Was it small? And then it grew in stature again. And I really think that that's important, especially when it comes to a film like this session nine. Of course, it comes out in 2001 and... Well, that, that was a little creepy with each knock we had there, almost as if it was a, a new knock of a different personality that was coming through. But we'll we'll get to that. Now, I've got two very exciting guests coming back on the show, coming back, like I said, returning guests, because we're in the middle of a little segment we're going to be doing, you know, for at least the, the end of the year, maybe going on a little bit past that by doing dastardly duos. And that's because when you listen to most podcasts nowadays, it's not just people like me. You've got, you know, a duo or, or a trio, but you usually have two distinct voices of people who often agree, maybe sometimes disagree. And so since this is a show that's focusing on people having to choose a film that they love and or respect and want to talk about, having two people come together makes a big difference. And, and, and these are two people that I, you know, I just want to have an excuse to talk to. In general, and so I'm I'm going to bring them on. One of them, I'm going to try not to butcher her last name, but it's going to happen anyway, so I don't feel too too bad. But from the Dead Ringers podcast, we have Nolan McBride and Emily Von Sela. How bad Hi. was it? That How was bad perfect. was it? Emily? That yes. was perfect. <laughs> Vindication. <laughs> I, I would I would try to do the the Golden Eye. Um, I'm invincible, but of course, you know. He does that and then he dies. So <laughs> that's, that's not good. <laughs> you did welcome. welcome, you guys. Yes. Thanks for having us on. Thank now, you. Both of these these individuals are old hat because they, they've had episodes that they've been on in the past. So I, I, well, I could easily say it. I'm going to see if you guys remember what episodes you were on to tell everybody. Uh, I was on first? for The Fog. And I was on for Land of the Dead. Oh, no, what not a, Land of the Dead. Sorry. Survival no. of the Dead. Survival of the Dead. Um, <laughs> and 
I know there's another one, and now I can't remember what it is. No, that was it. That was that okay. Was, that's okay, that's what you've been on for. Yeah. Okay. I, I think I think you needed a, enough of a recovery period after after being brave enough to talk about Survival of the Dead. <laughs> At, yeah, which going like it again. It's a movie I love. It's definitely <laughs> underloved. I don't know. I'd say underrated, but definitely revisiting right before that, I was like, oh, this is. It's like a hard movie to defend because I see all of its faults. <laughs> Whereas Emily just got just got a softball basically when it comes right. to the fog. <laughs> it was Perfect. a softball I was happy to take on because that movie rules. It's so good. I it, it, I think it would please you to hear that I've got a a friend who isn't really big into movies. Like you know he, he watches movies generally. You know and mentioned that he was really excited when it was October because he and his wife you know like to 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 find some scary movies or just fun horror films and stuff and he got really excited one night he goes hey uh i don't know if you've heard of this one but uh there's this old old movie that i'm going to check out with the wife tonight called the fog and i'm like uh-huh go, go on he's like yeah it's by the guy who did uh who did halloween have you seen it before and i'm like we'll we'll talk after you see it <laughs> and he forgot to contact me so like a couple days later when we were playing a game he's like dude i forgot to tell you we love that movie the fog it was so good and i was like Yes, it's it's the fog. It's fantastic. <laughs> so it, it was it was nice to hear that, you know, even people who aren't that steeped in horror and everything can can just pick up a movie like the fog on a whim and, and be converted. Yeah, very cool. I'm so glad they had fun with it. Of course, we're on the opposite end of the spectrum tonight by talking about Session 9. Again, like I said, Session 9 is a movie that comes out in 2001, and it's directed by uh, Brad Anderson, who, of course, goes on to do bigger, definitely much bigger things. Because uh, if you weren't somebody who was there at the beginning of Session 9, I definitely think when it comes to the aughts, and especially the early aughts, that it's probably one of the biggest definitions uh, of a cult film from that period, because I, I know that it was released in theaters. I don't really know many people who saw it in theaters. We'll, we'll find out from you guys in a second if that is, you know, something that that happened to you. But if you're not sure exactly of this movie, then you've definitely heard of other films that uh, or, or stuff that Brad Anderson, you know, has has worked on because he goes from this and, you know, makes a he had worked on uh, what's called romantic comedies before this and mm -hmm. did like happy accidents right before it. And then of course, you know, a couple of years later he ends up doing the machinist, which everybody remembers because of the crazy transformation that Christian Bale has on that. You know, he does uh trans Siberian. Um, he did the vanishing on seventh street, which the only reason I remember it is it's the only film I can think of where a literal character is an AMC theater projectionist. <laughs> <laughs> And it's it's John Leguizamo if I'm if I'm remembering correctly. That's that's one of the few like I will get into it, but like I'm a big Brian Anderson fan, but I never saw Vanishing on Side Street just because the reviews were so bad. And it's such a bummer because it also sounded like it was the more surreal, almost horror horror side of Brian Anderson. So I was excited about that. But yeah, I haven't been able to bring myself to watch it. Yeah, it's uh, it's a movie where choices are made. One of them is which is that it's a movie from 2010 that stars Hayden Christensen. Yeah. So that that puts it in a certain box. Um, yeah. But of course, if you're somebody who's who's listened to the show for a while or this is your first time, 
the setup that we have here is that we always bring on guests, but there's one thing that stays the same. And that's the questions that we ask every guest. There's five questions that everyone is asked in the same order and kind of how they answer it is how the flow of the conversation goes. Sometimes you might get, you know, a deep seated uh, history into zombie films. Maybe you'll get a conversation on what uh, Pamela Voorhees was doing until somebody decided to reopen the camp for years and years and years. Cause we, we still technically don't know. Sometimes you get deep in the weeds when it comes to just horror movies in general. So we're going to see where that goes, but we always start with the same important question, which is, do you remember the first time you saw session nine? I do. And I don't. <laughs> uh, okay. You're the perfect person to start with then. Which is to say, I have a very specific memory of it, but I also don't know if I'm mixing up some dates. So the main thing being here, whether I saw this or the machinist first, um, I'm pretty sure it was the machinist because that would have been right before uh, Batman begins. And I think at the time Christian Bale was probably my favorite actor. So I was like super, ex- of course, cause he's so broody. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I was in high school. I was in high school. Uh, and and love the machinist. And I think I'm 99% sure this is the case that I saw session nine after that. So I think I watched it probably a year or two later and it was in college. Um, Cause I do remember watching it with my then girlfriend uh, who was also very into horror. And like, this is one that we had just heard about. And I think rented from blockbuster. If it's, I feel yeah, like we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. Then. We'll get into that. Um, but yeah, uh, probably at this point, um, a little over 10 to 12 years ago, something like that. But yeah, I loved it and uh, have sort of been following Bradis and hoping he would get to do some really cool stuff. And he's had a, he's had a, like a lot of success, I think, and has gotten to do a lot. I don't know that it's all been great. We'll say. Um, but yeah, he's someone I really root for. And what about you, Emily? Uh, let's see. I think the first time I saw it, um, it was a blockbuster rental, um, total, you know, blind rental. We weren't really sure what we were getting into. Um, and the first time I watched it, I actually was kind of lukewarm on it. Um, I appreciated what it was doing, but I think that night I was just in the mood for something a little bit bigger, a little bit, you know, more bombastic and the subtleties of the film weren't really clicking with me. So it wasn't until a couple of years later when I revisited it that I really started to appreciate a lot of just the inner workings that were going on with the story and how it did so much with such a small budget um, and all of that good stuff. And like Nolan, I've kept my eye on Anderson ever since. And it's not, you know, like any career, he's got ups and he's got downs. So every time he has a down, it's a little bit disappointing because I know what he's capable of turning out. But um, he's a director that you know, it's just is so interesting. And the fact that he kind of came out of the gates with this one swinging and then still dips his toes into horror. um, It's, you know, it always gives me something to root for. Yeah. And it's, 
I think it's it's tantamount that both of you guys ended up mentioning Blockbuster there because, like I said, while, while I know that this did come out in a handful of theaters, I think that most people's exposure who were into horror at that time uh, would have come across it at Blockbuster. I want to say that the recollection that I had is that it was a Blockbuster exclusive and because just they just had a little sticker on the side because i know that a lot of those ended up being films that that came out under the the usa films banner like this one was because i worked at blockbuster at the time and i remember there being a very big push for this movie so i don't know if there was just something in the water that somebody wanted to make sure that we got this out or if it was part of a blockbuster exclusive deal and that's why we were pushing it so much but i remember that we got the tapes in considerably early before the release and so it was a film that when it came in i'm like a horror film sure yeah i'll i'll definitely check this out early and i remember watching it with friends and that i was the one who was just like entranced and mesmerized by it and everyone else was like this is boring as shit i'm like well okay (laughs) that's that's for you guys i i I will take this on because i i enjoy whatever's going on with it and it just kind of stuck with me i hadn't seen it i think for like seven or eight years, maybe a little bit longer. So revisiting it this time was, was a crazy experience. Now, this is the difficult part is the second question that we have, um, because we're going to get into a warning directly after this part. (coughs) So that's why I have to always try and reword this every single time, because we have had instances where if I am not very careful with my words, then we end up in dangerous territory. And so that is uh, whoever wants to do it. You guys can can choose amongst yourself or whoever wants to speak up first in as few words as possible without spoilers. What would you say the general synopsis of session nine is? Ooh. Cleanup crew knocks loose supernatural tile i don't know i think that's Ooh, how it i works. like that <laughs> we can go with that i like that <laughs> i feel like you could you could you could work some more stuff out of that metaphor <laughs> I we think were and my husband and i showed this to some friends a couple years ago and our like our little like you know tagline or you know clever way of getting people you know to sit down with us was that the movie is about the dangers of working in the asbestos industry <laughs> specifically in in a mental mental institutions that actually exist in real life right <laughs> yeah i was also gonna say like the dangers of being mentally ill in america uh, a horror show like there's a lot of that going on in this movie <laughs> Don't add like the little moniker, a horror show to have it tie in with like, you know, American horror story or anything. Cause <laughs> if you had somebody like, I'm not even going to mention his name. We all know the individual, but if, if that person had their fingers on this, this would be a much different and campier. Oh uh, dear God. <laughs> <laughs> you, you just said a horror show. And I'm like, no, no, my brain <laughs> just went through a terrible place. So we should, we should actually just be, be truly praising that Brad Henderson was attached to this and was like, this is a good idea instead of the other individual. I am not a fan. I I apologize. That's fine. 
Um, but the reason why I, I wanted to do that is if you're somebody who hasn't seen Session 9, you owe it to yourself. Uh, the only sad thing that I can say about this movie is that it is not available uh, on any streaming service that would be for free. You can go on to YouTube, you can go on to Google Movies, you can go on to Vudu, you can go on to Prime, you can go on to Apple TV, and you're going to have to pay a couple dollars for it. But I definitely think it's a movie that you should check out. So if you haven't seen it yet, we are going to pause right here because you have to get into spoiler territory when talking about this film and what makes it work for people and why it sticks in their mind. So we're going to have a slight little pause here. Technically metaphorical because you can still hear a little bit noise in the background, but we gave you time to hit the pause button and walk away. If you decided not to, that's of your own accord because we're jumping in to spoiler territory. And that's because the third question is what elements or scenes would you say have has helped keep this film in the public consciousness for the past 20 years because that, that's what i forgot to mention we're looking at the 20 year anniversary of this film oh yeah that's wow. too long <laughs> i think because this still feels like modern in that way I, yes but, yes yeah. it doesn't feel dated at all it feels very contemporary and i think that one of the things that really maybe not necessarily keeps it fresh, but just keeps it in the mind of its audience is the way it used um, the Danvers Hospital as its mm -hmm. filming location and the way it relied so heavily on what was already there. Like they go in and they, you know, set up cameras, but they didn't have to do a whole lot of set dressing and, you know, bringing in a lot of props and a lot of anything like they worked with what they had and it was incredibly effective because it was so creepy and it was so dilapidated. And, you know, the, the setting had as much of a ghost to it as anything that they were bringing along with the fictional story. Okay, I, I never do this, but since you hit upon that, I realized that I think for the discussion of this film and for the comments that you guys made about how modern it feels, that I th this is crazy, so permit me, and if you decide not, then we can just jump back to the discussion that we're having. But I almost feel like this is a situation where tying in the third question with the fourth question is something that has to has to be done and i think really is a service to this film because of if we're all on the same page then then you guys's brain probably went to the same place that my did when rewatching this movie and that's the, the the fourth question is typically what other movies would you uh, say <laughs> compare well to this and what does this movie do better than than those movies and what do those movies do better than this? And that I feel, and if you guys are, first of all, are you guys okay with, with tying those two together? Yes. I yes. would say, okay. yes. Being, being co-hosts on the dead ringer show where that question <laughs> feels very relevant. Like, yes, yes. <laughs> okay. That, that's what, that's why I wanted to do that because if you guys haven't listened to the dead ringers podcast, we usually save this for the end when you guys are plugging the shows, but of course, dead ringers is a show in which you guys are, are bringing two films together that are usually compatriots or have elements that are similar to each other. Correct. Yes. And I, when I was watching this movie, I was struck at how this movie does get talked about sometimes, but there is a certain subset of films that feels like it would not exist if this movie didn't have the cult following that it was. 
that it has. Now I feel like you're thinking of something different than I was thinking of. So I'm okay. kind of curious. Okay. Okay. Because what I was thinking when watching this is that if you haven't seen Session 9, you're somebody who decided to to go in and, and jump and listen to the rest of this. Or you're somebody who hasn't watched in a while. Go back and watch Session 9 because it's one of the films when it comes out on around 2001 is doing something different. And the, the fact that it's one of the films that's shooting high def video at 24 frames per second. So it looks weird, but the best way to compare its weirdness would be to like the nighttime scenes of something like Collateral, where mm-hmm. that the HD video is being used, or found My- fucking footage films. Yes. Yes. Oh yeah. Well, so that's what I was kind of thinking. I was wondering if you were thinking specifically of uh, what is it, Grave Encounters? Isn't that the one that's any of them? Any of them? Yes. I just okay. watched for the first time a couple weeks ago the. Uh, I'm going to mispronounce it. Gyeong Ming or whatever it is. Haunted Asylum. The Korean. Oh, yeah. Oh my God. Um, that's so scary. <laughs> but, so but, scary. but you think you, okay. You think about that movie. You think about Grave Encounters. You, you think about like Yellow Brick Road. You think about any of those movies. You think of any horror film uh, that's a found footage movie where they go to some type of asylum because of the fact that session nine is being shot on those eight w- with the HD video which is basically what you end up then having people use when it's, you know, actually being, Hey, we're filming ourselves that so many of the tenants of those movies have root and session nine, which is, it's not a found footage film, but the way it's shot and the way it feels at times. And because of the way it's using that setting, it feels kind of like the precursor to um, those types of found footage movies that you have. That's a really good point. And yeah, I totally agree. And I also think that if Session 9 were to be made, you know, 10 years after it was, if someone would have t- were to take this idea and say, hey, let's turn this into a film, the next thing out of their mouth would be, and I think it should be found footage. <laughs> yeah. And I'm Do glad that. it was made earlier because I think mm-hmm. that, you know, there's, there's a level of um, isolation and just kind of, you know, the generally haunted atmosphere that this film is able to achieve that I think a lot of found footage isn't able to get to because, you know, found footage isn't about taking it slowly. It's not about submersing your audience in with um, these characters and in this environment. It's got to be a lot more lively. Otherwise, you start to lose people. Yeah. I also feel like you would lose so much of what makes this movie interesting by going found footage Mm -hmm. because you're, you're tethered to perspectives in a way that you're not here. Like specifically Mm -hmm. one thing this movie does a lot is pairs like incongruous uh, audio and visual. Mm -hmm. Like when you have um, Mike is recounting the story of uh, is it Mary Hobbs? Uh, and like talking about like all the horrible things that happened and how actually all that stuff ended up being fake, blah, blah, blah. But like, while he's going, talking about like horrendous, like satanic rituals, you're just seeing like bugs and like weird shit in nature. Uh-huh. And it's just like, a, I don't know. It, it, it creates such an interesting experience. And see, that's, that's what I'm, I'm wondering. Cause I'm trying to, to think of, of what separates this movie from that, because I think with a couple tweaks, you could have it along the lines and it would be difficult to, you know, 
to capture something like that with the question always being, well, you know, who's filming certain things and why were the cameras left rolling? So if you have that aspect, it would be completely different. Um, but then even beyond that, Emily was mentioning the, the isolation. Would we say that it's it's the human aspect and possibly even the actors that you have involved that allow this to to transcend those normal tropes? I think yes, but also I think that um, Anderson's willingness to play it slow and to allow the story to unfold at such an intentional pace really goes a long way in kind of establishing that feeling of isolation because it's really, you know, it's just these guys in this, you know, in this busted out falling apart asylum like we leave the grounds a couple times but not for a really sufficient amount of time and so it's really just them there and you know allowing that space to breathe really really captures that feeling i think no i definitely i definitely agree with that i I also think and i don't want to say this as a slight to found footage because like i really enjoy found footage but found footage is not as good at building atmosphere as it is immersing you in a moment so that you can have that constant thrill. And so this movie for me is like 50%, like, like we talked about with the fog, this movie is like 50% atmosphere. Like that's half of what makes it so successful. It's just like, like you mentioned, it's harder to justify certain shots when they don't have someone filming them, but like all the creepy shots of corridors in the hospital, like add so much to the mood and also are just like legitimately chilling that like I feel like you lose so much of like I, I also think found footage is kind of terrible at dread and this movie is all about dread. Um and so like you you would lose so many so much of what makes this movie unique and like worthwhile, I think is like you're losing all of that that wonderful dread. How much do you think is tied to the fact that most people going in know that Danvers is is a real place because of course that is a selling point that I think still stands to this day when people are talking about it being like oh yeah it's a horror film that's about these guys who are cleaning up uh, a closed mental institution but it's an actual mental institution that that really did exist once upon a time do you think that knowing that these halls that they're stocking aren't recreations but are the actual place so that that dread that's coming is knowing that probably terrible things did actually go on here in one way or another. I mean, I would say yes. <laughs> I think that even if you don't know the specifics about Danvers itself, I think that, you know, they're taking that initial walk through on the day that they put their bid in and they're being um, led out by the, like the, town selectman or whatever his title is and he's kind of telling him the history and like oh this is what this wing was used for and this is what that was used for so even if you don't know the specifics about danvers it's clear that they're in a space that was you know used as an asylum and had this horrible history associated with it so i think that letting that sink in as you're watching it it really really puts you in the right mood yeah i also think it's like one of those instances of like striking gold, like whoever found this, like you were talking about earlier, whoever found this place and filmed something here was going to like find a way to make it successful. Because even if you 
don't know the history of this place or know that it was a mental hospital, like a, a specific real mental hospital. Like once you're in there, like Emily was saying, it just feels so real. And it feels like a place that just, it feels too legitimate to, uh, it has like its own vibe, basically. Like, like a, it has like an energy to it that like you kind of can't deny. And so like, uh-huh. even if you didn't know what happened there, you know that like, yeah, there's, there's something wrong or off and, and kind of also to what like Emily mentioned, as far as like that, that opening tour just feels like, like what I mentioned earlier, as far as like a, a parade of just all the horrible things or the horrible ways we've treated people in mental hospitals. And so like, I think one of the other things that works so well about this movie is as much as it's sort of maybe exploiting some of those stories for scares at the same time, I think it's also bringing light to the real, to the real aspects of it. Um, And so like you have horror operating on two levels, you have the movies, um, you know, supernatural stuff, as well as like, just kind of imagining all the horrible things that actually happen there. Um, and so you get the kind of the double effect. I, I think the weight that comes with that does a, a good deal of it. You know, as you said, that history of knowing the things that have gone in in places like these just all across the country, because there's there's so much of the movie that it, in a way it kind of zigs where you think it's going to zag. And that's because it doesn't go over the top with it. Like the dread that's there is the, the actual dread that you get sometimes when you're, you're walking down a hallway in a place that you you've never been, you know, that, that there's no light uh, and the other side. And so you don't know what's down there, or maybe you're walking, you know, under an underpass, you know, somewhere to, to get, you know, it's just a normal day. You're in a city and you have to cross under an underpass and, <laughs> you know, on you feel that maybe somebody, is behind you. They're not doing anything, but just the presence of maybe there being somebody behind you is enough to, to put you at ease that, that this movie's operating in that realm, as opposed to trying to go for all the jump scares that, that you end up having once you get into the realm of the found footage films. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's one of the things that with the characters, as you mentioned, because you have the story about, I don't think it's Mary Hoppus. I think it's some other woman that's not attached when, when uh, Mike's telling the story about, you know, the, uh, yeah, that the first one I think you're right. yeah. is not Mary Hobbs. Mary Hobbs is like the main person we're hearing in the sessions. Yeah. The titular but, sessions. But by hearing that, you know, and just the, the time that it's taking, cause like there's, there's no music that's rising to sting or anything behind it. You know, so you're just kind of sitting with it. Or even when when Mike takes the the chopstick, you know, and he's yeah. holding at, at the guy's eye talking about like he, he even turns to them. He's like, no, I'm not going to do anything. I just want to explain it. But you're still just sitting there clenched, you know, just thinking, you know, what if there's, you know, gust of wind? What if there's a window that slams and he accidentally, you know, stabs him? Like it, it's the anticipation of certain things happening that, that I feel like elevates those moments where, where the other movies are, are going to go for the big hits. Yeah. Yeah. And then just having the restraint to say, no, we're not going to go there. We're going to give you something different. Yeah. Yeah. And I think they also, one of the things that makes this movie so special is the way 
he juggles the sort of tensions between the group and the different motivations in the way that you don't really know what everyone has going on until the end. And so that the tension of like, everyone's got something going on, but we don't know uh, exactly what that entails or what that's going to mean for everyone else in the group. Uh, and so sort of watching that slowly boil is, is really exciting. Um, and, and to your earlier point, Adrian, I think one of the other things uh, that really works with this film is the way it's shot and, and it feels so claustrophobic. Um, speaking of some of the movies, this reminded me of, because um, again, the the Dead Ringers thing is also just a product of the way my brain naturally works while I'm watching movies. <laughs> it's just like, what else is this like? Um but uh, it, the claustrophobic sense, one I wasn't expecting to think about while watching this was The Descent. And Ooh, okay. specific, specifically oh, yeah. from the perspective of this group of people <laughs> brought together who are regularly uh, in sort of intense situations with each other. And there's some like simmering tensions that are because of things that have happened uh, in the past. And then they're going into this sort of claustrophobic, dangerous space and then dealing with not only each other, but then uh, supernatural things. Um, and so like, I, I don't know, just there's so many shots where like, we just focus in on faces so close all the time that you, you can't see anything else. Like, it's kind of like he's removing the ability to like look around or remove some of that tension because like the scene I, I'm thinking of specifically is when Josh Lucas is, uh, in the basement and he found, he finds like the wall full of coins. Yeah. And like, there's so many shots where it just keeps going like back and forth between like his hand going into the hole and just like his eyes. And, and again, because of the way it's shot in general, there's like always a sense of paranoia. So the whole time, even though we haven't heard anything, I'm expecting someone to just like walk up and nail him. Like, there's no reason for me to think that yet. Cause we don't, at this point, we don't, nobody has any, uh, has done anything to make us think that they're going to be like violent, but there's just something about the way it's shot that I'm just like so worried in that moment because I can only see his eyes or I can only see the wall. And it's really like, <laughs> I want him to like yeah. back out so I can make sure there's not someone else in the room or something like that. Yeah. Absolutely. Plus, you know, just don't go into the scary asylum at night. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, but I need to, to stay behind and listen to the rest of my audiobook. Right. <laughs> also, if you're going there like late at night, don't be like, on your headphones like just you know you might want to hear if someone's right. like sneaking up on you yeah given that they've said that like people break in there all the time um yeah okay i i we'll call it out i, I think we need to to have a, a slight discussion emily i want to find out if there are any movies that made you think of in a second but we need to talk about the characters but in, in a film where they say that there's people who are um you know breaking out or breaking in you know where they're homeless or teenagers or people who used to live there and everything. This is a movie that the thing that, that put a smile on my face that I completely forgot about is that Larry Fassenden shows up in the film. I completely yes. forgot that too. <laughs> Play, playing the most normal character that man has ever played in a film. But a holy shit, the way that he like peels into the parking lot in his car and is like, <laughs> like whipping hey, around Larry's the corner. <laughs> it's so good. 
it's a fantastic entrance for a character who's getting about three minutes of screen time. Exactly, yep. exactly. But that's the thing in in the world of, of that man, of that icon of of independent horror. Literally, the most normal character he has ever played in a movie where everyone else is losing their mind, has ulterior motives, or are just assholes. Right. <laughs> Yeah, he, he's like, none of those people. Hey guys, I'm here to show up and do the job. Anybody? Right? Is anyone here? Look at this. All we've actually heard is that Craig is a good worker, and yeah. he, doesn't, he doesn't even get a chance to shine before he gets murdered. <laughs> but I, I, I think that that comes across for for the fact that this movie, even though you know for the time, not everybody was hugely known or was at a weird point in their career. That that I think that's one of the things that that elevates it that you would lose if it was a traditional um, found footage film is, is the cast of just solid character actors. I mean, you've got Peter Mullen in the lead role. You've got Brendan Sexton, the third, you've got Josh Lucas and the vulnerable David Caruso, who gives probably one of the best cinematic fuck you of all time. That moment is priceless. <laughs> best fuck you ever we we th- we think of caruso traditionally nowadays in one way or another as the joke of of having a bad pun putting on the sunglasses and then yeah <laughs> but you you go back and you look at this movie and you're like okay he's he's doing the work here he's he's got this fully fledged character <laughs> that that definitely has his own stories and beats and you can tell that that it's not a big showy part but he's definitely going for it yeah and i think that the work that they put into i think writing the situations that these characters are living in like outside of you know the asylum bit and then having the actors bring those to life there's a lot of depth to these people that you might not fully get on the first watch you know it might take two or three or four to understand you know like we get the dynamics and then we get that you know oh hank and um phil aren't getting along oh they're both kind of dicks there's a love triangle sort of but like there's more to it and we see a lot of nuance going on between the actors yeah i i love the relationship between gordon and or peter mullen mullen's character and david caruso where like they also have this tension, but it takes the longest to tease out because like, we don't really understand what's going on there or we kind of think both of them. I mean, in the, the first, if you don't know what's going on, I feel like David Caruso seems a little suspect. And so like he might be doing something else on the side. We, We don't really know. And so I like, I really like the way that that like relationship sort of unfolds. And then by the end, uh, ends tragically. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Everything in this movie ends tragically. Yeah. Don't root for anyone, basically, is, <laughs> is, is what you're told. Because, I mean, it doesn't matter how small or benign, you know, the characters seem. that Just terrible things happen to them. Yeah. yeah. And as they go along and, you know, they're trying to get this project done within a week. So there's also kind of a not a huge ticking clock, but there's a little bit of a ticking clock as we go through these days. And they start to get more and more tense and the original tensions that were existing between the characters start to get amplified and, you know, layered because now we have all of this different stuff at play. It really feeds 
kind of the just the energy that's going on as things finally come to a head on those final two days. I think what's great about the movie, which the the first time you watch it, it might not come across as such is the work that Peter Mullen is doing because it's a lot quieter and more understated. You know, the first time that you're watching it with just how closed off he is for, for so much of it that you're not expecting where things go. At, at the end and that while everyone else you know is outwardly has these these explosions with the frustrations and everything that go he goes on or is going on he appears that he has a level of uh, of calm or is just in a different state than everyone else is and it's not something that really comes across until you reach the end and then you're re-watching it again and you're able to notice the beats that he's doing and and how it appears one way but that's not actually what's going on yeah yeah there's a particular moment um when he's you know kind of off by himself and he's trying to call home and talk to his wife and then um Brendan Sexton, who plays his nephew, you know, kind of comes up and wants to let him know, hey, Uncle Gordon, I'm here for you. I'm going to do a really good job for you. And I just want you to know that. And like the few moments it takes Gordon to recenter himself and get back into into the world of, you know, the team and the job and the work that they're doing and away from the thoughts of what's going on at home it's a transition and you can see him kind of working his way back in order to have this conversation with um, what's his name? Jeff. Yeah. You can, you really just see him trying so hard not to break down Yeah, because like he's, he's like, I love to the way he even says the line, like Jeff walks up and he's like, how's uh, I forget what the wife's name is. Uh, And he's like, how, how's she doing? And he's like, Wendy, he's like, she's, very tired like he just like <laughs> draws it out and you're just like he's not talking about windy um but i do think yeah like once you realize because again i i hadn't watched this for probably about the same as you adrian like i think it'd been since like 2014 maybe um and so and that's that's part of why i like long lapses in my movies is like i can forget enough to where like it can be exciting again and so like going back through it th- this the first time, I was like, I did, honestly don't remember ex- exactly <laughs> the full direction it goes. And so like I was kind of thinking that Peter Mullen's character was a little more innocent because I for some reason had it in my head that David Caruso was behind all of it. Um, and <laughs> so like, such a dick. <laughs> yeah, and, and Peter Mullen seems a lot more obvious in terms of like, he should be the one doing it, but they, they do so much to like sort of throw you off. Yeah. And really like give credible motivations or like suspicions to everybody else. And, and just the whole movie, Peter Mullen is just suffering is what it yeah. looks like. And he does that in a way that's really interesting. Cause like a lot of the time he's hiding it a lot of the time he's suppressing it. And like, especially the stuff like the scene you were just talking about where he's calling home when you get to the end of the movie and realize like his wife's already dead at that point, he's just like, stuck in this loop trying to like convince himself he's dealing with a different problem than he actually is. And it's just like so sad to see him just struggling to deal with what he's going through. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, he's got the mental break. He, he's, you know, definitely has cognitive dissidence uh, of, of what happened because of how traumatic it was. But 
what clued me in this time so early on to my brain come making me go, oh, that's right, is how David Caruso plays one of the first interactions um, he he has with with Gordo is, you know, when he's asking about Wendy and he's asking about Emma and, you know, he's just kind of muttering to himself, you know, and he's like, yeah, you know, she's she's keeping us up. She's got the ear infection. And it's the way that David Caruso goes. She still has that, that when you watch it the first time, it's like, oh, man, that sucks that she still has the ear infection. And but David Caruso is like, she still has that. She's had that since the christening. And it's <laughs> a lot more when you see it more than once, you realize that it's more of a probing question instead of feeling sympathetic. It's more like that. That's really weird. That that shouldn't be a thing that's going on. But clearly it's his mind, you know, trying to cover up for the fact that he he did kill them and that it's the you know, his brain isn't really thinking, but subconsciously it's like, oh, yeah, this is something that I was ha- having to deal with at the time that was causing, you know, the stress for whenever, you know, he did murder her. When do you guys think it, it happened? Um, I always read it as it happened after that first day with the bid. Yeah. Agreed. Like okay. once he, once he interacted with the, the building, like once he'd been inside and it yeah. had touched him or whatever, you know? Yeah. And I read the flowers as like, Hey, we got the job. I'm home to celebrate. And then bad shit. <laughs> so we're, yeah. we're, we're reading. Cause I mean, it, it's one of those that I, I think I, I don't know if there's multiple ways to read it. If I, if, you know, if I or other people potentially see it different because like I, and I had never questioned it until this rewatch was the way that it's presented, you know, when he has everything in the bag and with the, the flowers in, you know, yeah, is, mm-hmm. is trying to figure out. And I think it's because you have the disembo- and disembodied voice of of yeah. wendy you know and it mentioning sounds wrong. the flowers yeah it doesn't it doesn't feel right and she doesn't you know ask like you know oh is this because of the job did something good happen with the work you know it's just the roses for me and then you have the change and the voice and you know just everything coming to to the screech and it doesn't feel right and because mm-hmm. of the fact that we know that later on when he's calling in air quotation marks home that he's not actually having a conversation with her. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And so it's, and maybe that's just me wondering at this time, having seen it a couple times and being like, Oh, well, how much of what we're being presented is something that actually happens. I, I, I think that you guys are absolutely correct, but it's just something that in the back of my mind is one of those things like, Oh, how, how long, you know, have things been bad? Is are we seeing something that definitely happened at that time, or is it even worse than that? And it's it's something that the whole reason why he's doing this job in a week is because he mentally needs to 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 repair the thing that he's done in his mind, you know. Mm. Yeah, well, that's an think interesting way to see it. The again, when when I read it, he 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 takes that risk and and accepts the week before he before he kills her okay um but i think they're all a product of the same thing 
Like they're all like his, his sort of sleep deprived state. He's not making good decisions mm-hmm. and he's sort of, I think that's what the movie gets to is like, he sort of left himself vulnerable by being um, so de- detached from himself because he's so exhausted all the time and just like working himself to the bone. Um, and I do think um, to what you were sort of just saying, Adriana, say two things. One, one thing I do really like about this movie and and I've talked about this a lot where like I'm a a big uh I'm not a big fan of when movies do like oh the person was crazy and (laughs) so much of the movie that you thought you saw was just like this sort of fabricated thing that we just had to visualize because we had no other way to do it Mm -hmm. um because it always just ends up even if I'm into the idea of that it always just ends up feeling a little cheap and I do feel like this movie does manage to like handle the, the sort of like, well, he was losing it and he lost it. And this is his sort of downward spiral and the way it either hides or shows parts of him that are crazy, I think is like really, really, really well done. Um, and that's where it maybe, you know, to get back to some of the stuff it reminds me of um, the, the two biggest things this reminds me of are um, obvious. One is the shining. Um, yes. cause you know, all, all the very obvious ways. And I, I do think though that it does strike similar nerves. Um, I do actually think I might've seen this before I saw the shining. Um, Ooh. Wow, if really? I remember, uh, well, cause I saw them both in college. I don't remember which one I saw first, but I think it might've actually been this. Um, but the, the other one besides the shining is the thing, uh, it's the movie I kept thinking about throughout because, just these like working class Joe. Well, I mean, in that I'm thinking of alien a little bit and conflating that, but like <laughs> these working class Joes who are just like trying to get along and like really don't trust each other very much at all. And also maybe resent each other a lot or have various levels of resentment. And it's just like them trying to get along long enough to finish a job while that's sort of like coming undone because everyone's got like their own, like I, the the thing I love so much is like the way everyone has their own sort of pursuit in the movie. Like when Mike, be- Mike becomes obsessed with these tapes and he just keeps sneaking off or like borderline sabotaging things or like unplugging things to pretend like they're broken. So he can go sneak off and like look for tapes and Hank obviously finds his treasure. It's just like, everyone's like got their own like little personal angle that they're working in this little space already. And none of them trust each other. And it's just like this constant tension because you're waiting to see who's going to like stab the other one in the back or just run off. That's a really good point. Now, Emily, you're the one that we haven't really heard a lot of the comparisons that if you have any, that, that you'd want to make this to. So I'm interested to see where, where you're coming at. Um, I agree with Nolan on The Shining. Um, That's one that always kind of springs to mind. But another one that always is kind of um, at the back of my head when I watch this is how similar it is in feel to The Haunting. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, there we go. Just the way, you know, you come into this space and something about it is influencing these characters, but it takes until the end of the film until we really start to see to what degree, like as things start happening along the job, you know, we see the frictions between all of the characters. We get 
a really big sense of, you know, creepiness from the asylum itself, but it's a long time before something, something certain actually happens. Um, you know, we're getting all of these hints along the way that something's off, but I think is, um, what's Josh Lucas's character's name? Hank. Hank, thank you. I think is Hank getting attacked the first real solid event that we have? I think so. Yeah, for the most part, basically. And that's like halfway yeah. through the movie, I think. Yeah. And so, you know, at that point, we start to wonder, okay, is it something in the asylum? Is it, you know, a, a former patient who may have come back? Is it one of our guys? Is it something supernatural? And we don't really understand, you know, how fully it's kind of a combination of some of those things until we get to the end. But ultimately, it is this asylum kind of working its way on the vulnerable. Yeah. Which, which I think is uh, an important thing and an important distinction for this movie and why I think while the film is definitely presenting everything one way that you could look at it, you know, through multiple different lenses because <clears throat> of how things are, are, are uh, come about in the movie with, with how long it takes to do so with the fact that you have, you know, Mike who's listening to the tapes, which is a big thing because he just, we have something in there that you know some force in the asylum itself that that makes him go into this room and listen to these tapes and depending upon how you want to look at it is how things transpire from there of course you know we have the mary hobbs and and the multiple personalities and then we get to you know simon that that we have in there and it's kind of depends on on what point of view that you're taking when you're going into this movie with how you feel about something uh, like Simon is. Are you looking at it from the point of view that the movie's presenting in a way that there is a supernatural force, you know, that had uh, a hold of this individual and that that thing has kind of attached itself to Danvers and is inflicting itself upon Gordon with the voice that he, you know, hears in his head uh, as things are going on. But at the same time, there's the viewpoint of looking at it in a more abstract way with the commentary it's making with people who are, you know, dealing with, with mental illness in a way that sometimes, you know, are exploited for certain gains or, or misunderstood and, and, you know, are, are let loose upon the world in one way or another because of how things are, are presented that, that there's many different sides to it. And then you also have the fact that, um, that Brad Anderson, one of the few things that he actually mentioned when he was working on the film was where he was like kind of the headspace and the film that he was, uh, had in mind when he was working on it, um, was Nicholas, uh, Roeg's, uh, don't look now. Oh, oh nice. And so, so the fact that you have uh, the character of Gordon going through the movie and seeing all these, you know, things happen and questioning at it, and it's not until the climax that they realize that they themselves are at the heart of everything that's going on. Yeah, that's I never would have thought of that. That's fantastic. But when you mention it, then you're like, oh my god, it, and, it, and it clicks, and that light bulb comes on. Um, the one that really struck me when rewatching this movie, and it's a movie that I'm probably going to watch tonight because 
I, I when I watched the movie, uh, I watched uh, Session Nine last night at 11 p.m., which first of all isn't the greatest thing because while it's not like the scariest movie overall, it definitely has that dread and that creepiness. And if you're sitting up in your bed watching this at 11 p.m., not not exactly the best choice. How it's many little... nightmares did you have last night? <laughs> I I didn't have it, but where I am, like how our bedroom's set up and everything, my side of the bed is the one that faces the door to the hallway. Uh, and my Ooh. side of the bed is also where the cat comes up and will lay lots of times. But the cat, um, we don't know what it is. Because I, I personally don't 100% believe in anything like ghosts, but there'll be times where the cat's lying down and then we'll sit straight up and we'll be staring into the hallway. (laughs) Normally that's not something that bothers me. Last night it was a thing that bothered me because there was no noise and no nothing. And the cat just sat up and woke me up around two o'clock in the morning and is just staring down the hallway at something. And when I try to nudge her or move her, she normally, you know, will like let out a sound and will look at me like, what do you want? But this time she was just silent and just staring down the hallway. And I'm like, I don't like this at all. And I need to go buy a whole bunch of cameras and shit and set them up because I'm a crazy (laughs) person now. That is Uh, so creepy. (laughs) But but the movie that was in my mind that I wanted to uh, watch that I'm probably going to watch tonight was... The kill list. Oh, you know what? Nice. What I did think of that a little bit towards uh, I think my second watch because specifically the relationship between Gordo and Phil. Yeah. That like the longtime partnership that's sort of fraying at the edges. Like, uh, I, I yeah, I can t- definitely see that. And then mm-hmm. and then having the kind of slightly strained relationship with the wife and having the work get in the way with that. But at the same time, while he's going through and doing this job, there's the other forces that he doesn't fully understand that are, are guiding him along the whole time. Well, and like specifically also like all the ways he thinks he, all the ways he would disbelieve that thing they're using against him. And the, like, he's just like you were saying, not understanding exactly how well he is fitting into their plan, even if he's trying to like revolt against it. Exactly. And like I and I hadn't really realized it in the past, like putting those two together. But when watching it, I was like, "Holy shit, this would pair really well with something like Killers," because they're two entirely different films, but they've got lots of elements th- thematically that that overlap. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, I do just oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, you're fine. You go first. Oh, I was just saying, yeah, like we've kind of alluded to it, but yeah, that what I love so much about the movie is the way it works on those different levels to where like. In my head, yeah, I kind of treat it as if Simon got into Gordon, but it does leave everything in such a way that, like, all things are possible, all things are deniable. Like, I'm open to whatever, but I like my ending, but I like that it's also left (laughs) open to, you know, any other interpretation. Like, yeah. Yeah, same. And I think that when you, you know, there's something when you have the Simon ending, then it makes Gordon maybe not, you know, fully innocent, but maybe less culpable in his actions, which makes his story a much more tragic one than if it was, you know, him just kind of snapping and doing all of these terrible things. And I like that 
I like that tragic ending because I think it's befitting of a story with this very haunted, very terrifying, very tragic place. Yeah. And you do, I mean, again, not to like nitpick details, but like you do have a little support for this because one thing I noticed is like the way that Gordon is so before they arrive uh, at the very beginning, like Gordon is very, you get enough of a sense of him that he's like, He's the the safety guy. He's the rules guy. He's like, I, we got to do this right or we can't do it at all. But then as soon as they get there, he starts like lowering the estimate, like just keeps undercutting it. And you're just like, he already just feels like he's been touched in some way. Like he's just not himself anymore as soon as he's gotten here. And so like, yeah, like I do think it just feels tragic because we just see him sort of losing himself over the course of it, either to just being sort of mentally ill or to... Simon, however you want to look at it. Yeah. I, I think that's that's why it works because you have you definitely have how the movie's presenting things, but if you want to read it or dig deep into it, it, it opens itself up that that interpretation can exist without ruining the fabric of the movie. You do have to question a couple of things. Like, of course, Mike going about finding the boxes that were that were listening to to the story of of Mary Hobbs. Mm-hmm. Um because without that, if you do not have that tissue in there, you get kind of a different reading. But depending upon how you want to look at the tapes that we're listening to, it could be multiple different you know, ways that you want to read it. And that's how I was viewing it this time as I was trying to look at it as as as, as what else is there here, you know, because I think mm-hmm. each time I watch session nine, I'm getting something different out of it. And this one, one of the first things that sticks out on me is the story that Mike's telling and mentioning the scandal and that the whole thing about it is talking about repressive memories and, you know, and the memories coming back up and and the treatment that they were using and that it turns out that everything that she supposedly, you know, this person supposedly remembers is fake. And so, you know, that there isn't complete truth to it. And we've got these tapes that we're listening to that we've got the nine sessions and we've got, you know, the, the multiple, you know, personalities that, that are taking over and that in, in a way, those uh, each one that you have, you know, with like Billy uh, living in uh, the eyes and princess living in the tongue, um, you know, for speaking the truth and stuff like that, you know, can have, you know, there's analogous ways that, that they're going about. But at the same time, when you're getting to the end, you know, Simon is the one and it could be, you know, a demon or spirit or something like that. At the same time, it could be the projection of the person who committed this terrible thing that they're, you know, their their psyche snapping and breaking in a way that that was the coping mechanism and that there could be no demon. And it's just, it, it's not so much an act, but it is a person whose brain is literally broken into these splinter cells and that you have, um, you you have Gordon who, you know, was already, you know, broken in a way when he was coming here. And because of just the influence and the dread and everything that's getting to him, he breaks more and then commits this, th- this thing that there's a chance that he does it literally because he snaps and that, you know, the, the film's just going on about the, the way that people deal with trauma and the way that people are broken and stuff like that. But, but then you, you do have the, you know, the supernatural side that you're looking at, but depending upon how you want to look at it, there are those pieces, you know, for people to, to have the argument be on their side if they want to go down that avenue, which you don't always have when you're seeing something like, you know, the found footage films 
in which it's like, well, no, clearly the person who's being thrown across the, the room by absolutely nothing. Yeah, that's definitely a demon or a spirit. You can't, you can't argue otherwise with it. It's not so open to interpretation. Exactly. Exactly. And that I think that's part of the reason that you have something you know, like this work with people because you can have somebody who's looking at it this way and, and that connects with them or the mental illness is something that act, you know, you know, reaches out to them. And because you have all those elements that usually are just working on a singular level in other movies that, that has the layers here that when you rewatch it, you're able to appreciate, you know, that, that stew that it's melding together. Yeah. Yeah, Definitely. I also feel like a lot of movies have trouble doing pulling off that balance. Like it's not just because like, it's just hard to leave to give enough sort of weight to every side in terms of like interpretation so that you feel like all multiple sides are like really like valid beyond just being like, well, you can think that if you want to, but I do feel like this movie really does achieve that like tricky balance because of the way it handles its characters. Um, and the way it plays with their motivations and, and our sort of what we do get to see of them. Um, I don't know. It's just really, really, really good. Mm-hmm. Would you say that it's, uh, would you say that it's the anticipation? Cause normally if you're coming into to the film, you know, and you know that it's horror, even if you put it under something like, you know, psychological horror or supernatural horror, there's certain elements that you're, you're waiting for. You're waiting for, you know, big moments to happen. And this one definitely teases them out for when they're going to happen. Do you think that anticipation of something bigger happening earlier on makes the, the latter part that much stronger? Oh yeah. I think that, the way this film does anticipation, I think it's really artfully rendered because, you know, however you want to interpret the ending, there's so many clues along the way that just set the stage for this place is not right. This place (laughs) is not healthy. This place is not safe on whatever level you want to interpret that. So I think that dropping those seeds and just kind of letting them go for a little while, it, it puts the audience on edge because we know something's wrong. We don't know what or how, but something is not right here. If we're going with the, the, the Simon interpretation of things, especially, you know, with the line of, you know, feeding upon the, or living in the wounded in the week, um, definitely with it surviving in the, in the place, it kind of latches on to, to Danvers. Do we, do we think that it's waiting for somebody like a Gordon to come along to, to feed upon, to make them stronger or to, I don't know to what end, but does it feel like it's dormant until that time? Cause we know that, that people have been breaking in here, but you don't have the punks who are breaking in and, you know, graffitifying the, the, the place, you know, uh, are then murdering each other or anything like that. So do you think that it's, it's waiting for a certain type of wounded and weak person to, 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 either feed upon their essence, inflict them or something along those lines. I think so. Yeah. I think that it can't just get into anyone because I think that the person it's targeting has to have the right cracks Mm -hmm. already. Nolan, what do you think? Well, I also think it has, I do think it is more than just like a single person. I do think like the group, the group dynamic here matters because Mm. I think, again, I feel like this is going to go too far, but like 
I feel like we need to think of Simon as like a force rather than like a, you know, singular ghost in that way. Like the way that we would normally try to like give it a sort of body. And so I think mm. like we talked about, I think it is influencing all of them to degrees. It just happens to be using Gordon as like the main instrument. Um, and like, because he does, he does seem the most susceptible, but I think it is trying to like impress influence on all of them in, in different ways. Um, and so I think, cause like, I think if just like a random person went in there and slept, like, I don't think it's going to get into them and they're going to go back and start like killing everybody. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think it's yeah. that simple. I think it's like, yeah, I, I don't know what the alchemy would be for like what it needs, but like in this case, I think like there is one specific person that's, you know, they're able to sort of latch onto and then like, enough others around that it can sort of manipulate and like, you know, exert, uh, exert its will on, on this little group. No, I, I can see that. The interesting thing that that posits before we get to the final uh, question here is that earlier this year, there was a, an interview in uh, Fangoria uh, where Brad Anderson was, was talking about the movie, you know, with its 20th anniversary and he mentions that he and the the writer of the movie, the the guy who plays Mike, had been kind of you know messing around with the idea of wanting to go back and make a prequel film, Session One. Would would that be something that be that you think would be interesting at all, or is that something that you're like that's something funny to joke about, but not actually to 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 jump into? I don't know. That's kind of. <laughs> That's kind of making my hair stand on end in a bad way. <laughs> yeah, as much like the on the one hand, and this is the thing, like I feel like Brad Anderson's career has mostly skirted the line of like horror and thriller. Like if he's not doing horror, he's doing like more outright thrillers. And I think he's obviously good at both, but I always want to see him go harder on the horror end of things. And um, I just don't, I feel like this, as much as I would love to have him return to this type of thing, uh, there's so many reservations I would have about that specifically in that, like, you know, one being like, as much as I think the way this movie handles a lot of its subject matter is pretty good. Um, we've also had like 20 years since then and a million other movies that like indulge the, you know, crazy mental hospital trope that, is not always the best thing. And so like, I don't know that people would necessarily treat that well now. Whereas like, I'm sure somebody could call what's in session nine exploitative towards that whole, towards those type of people. I, I think it still works because of the way it sort of sheds light on that stuff and yeah. is sort of it, you know, it's using that to build its fear, but it's also like highlighting it in a way that feels like it, it's paying its respect. And so like, I, I don't know. I When I hear that, I just think of like, uh, to invoke it again, maybe season two of American Horror Story, which takes place in an asylum. <laughs> no. There's a lot of uh, <laughs> scenes of like sexual abuse and stuff. And I'm like, I don't know if that's what I want to see in this movie. Yeah. So. And I think just if we were to, I, I don't want the gaps to be filled in on this story I yeah like it. i think the vagaries they work for it i don't want it to be over explained i like it the way it is 
leave it alone. Yeah, that's, I agree. <laughs> very much agree. And like, why, why this movie that's so great at being subtle and ambiguous? Why go back and shine a bunch more light on it and sort of ruin what made this work in the first place? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, I, the 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 plus side to mention is that it's not going to happen because of legal issues that that involve focus features. Um, but it, I mean, but but it was it, it was interesting to to see like how much they'd gone into it and that it was it was weird because what they were focusing on was the Mary Hops part and saying hey let's let's we're gonna make a movie that's focusing entirely on Mary Hops leading up to and surrounding that Christmas day. See, and I feel like if they were going to do that movie, I'd only want to see it if it was actually a serious drama about how terrible, like, that whole system was. You know, like, I I wouldn't want to see that played for, like, that would feel like it's just playing all of her trauma for, like, spooks in a way. Whereas, like, this just feels like, I think because Mary Hobbs' story parallel is, like, parallel to Gordon's, it doesn't feel like it's, it's just saying, like, these things happen. And so here's another example of it. So it, it doesn't feel as direct. And I think making invoking her so directly would be, it would just kind of ruin, like we talked about, ruin the balance of what he's already like achieved in this, in this movie. Yeah. Agreed. But I do think they should team up and like write something new. Yeah. I think that, I think they're a really good writing team and I'd like to see them on another project together. Hey, I mean, they, they clearly spent all the time. I mean, you could go, um, just search for uh, Fangoria and and Session Nine. Uh, probably put in Q and A in there. Um, but it's it's Wampler who who did the piece. Oh, uh, so oh cool! Oh, he's a big Session Nine champion. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Scott Wampler of uh, uh, what's it called the the King Cast is a is a really big proponent of the film, and he's the one who you know sat down to 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 put together the piece, talking about the discussion that they, uh, the film itself, but then also focusing on. Uh, the session one aspect of it and everything. So it was interesting. So, you know, they clearly are in contact and they spent all this time, you know, because they had two ideas that they were originally going with and it was a prequel that they set upon and, and, you know, going into it that way. So, hey, maybe something will will come out of it, even if it's not, you know, that type of story or elements of that story. They're clearly, you know, have the creative juices flowing. So maybe there'll be something that they you know, embark on together, you know, maybe they'll be able to get uh, David Caruso out of his uh, slump and everything. (laughs) Probably not. Probably not. David, we need you to come back and tell another character to go fuck themselves. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I Um, would be, I would be okay with them directing a much later sequel to empire records. And we bring Brandon Sexton, (laughs) Brandon Sexton, the third, we, we make his Jeff, merge with uh, his Warren Beatty from Empire Records and then just do a 20 years later sequel where he's in a haunted record store. This I is would a 100% golden idea, watch clearly. this. Yes. Uh, I know that um, podcasts are an audio medium, uh, so I'd just like everybody to imagine the Cary Grant's Get Out gift playing <laughs> right here because that's the only response. Uh, that is worthy of this. That's fair. That's fair. Or if it, maybe if it's like what? Because I, I, lo- I was I was worried that the next thing that you're going to say is that the ghost that's haunting the record store is Rex Manning. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> we just can't get rid of him. Every day is Rex Manning day. Oh. 
okay. So this is when we're going to jump to the final question to wrap things up. <laughs> because Nolan asked for it. Um, so having rewatched Session 9 for the first time in a while, uh, do you think that it's definitely worthy of the status that it's been gaining over the, the years, having the moniker cult status attached to it? Or do you think that, you know, sometime in the past 20 years or decades that slowly over time that Sheen's kind of wearing away uh, at it and it's maybe not not worthy of that reverence that some people have towards it? Oh, I think it's totally deserving. Um, I think I think it totally holds up. I think the only thing in 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 that sort of mindset that I would think of is like this movie is maybe movie as the years go on that will need that little bit of extra context because especially just in terms of the video, the you know being shot on video because not having watched it in whatever seven years or so, like I forgot that it was shot on video, so it does have that look at first and. And I do feel like if you don't sort of know how that's going to play into the way the movie builds tension or how that, you know, was, I, I kind of see it as like a reflection of, of that era, especially that was when a lot of people were trying digital stuff. And so like that stuff that I think plays into how I watched the movie and could potentially rub some people the wrong way. Cause you know, video has a different look. Some people really just don't vibe with it when it looks like that or like, you know, Michael Mann's 2000s work as well. Like it just, it, it doesn't work for everyone, but I do think it actually plays into what the movie's doing. And so I think it's important. I just think, you know, it's, I don't, I don't think it's a thing you can necessarily just throw a blank recommendation and everyone will love it. I think it's worth being like, Hey, it's kind of like this little indie movie, you know, keep that in mind when you watch. But I do think it's like, one of the best movies, uh, you know, one of the best horror movies of the, of the 2000s, probably. Yeah, I fully agree. I think that, you know, it, this is one of those movies that, you know, the, the cult fandom, um, it's really an appropriate moniker for it because it's a film that a lot of people discovered after the fact, and not even just like in the year following its release, like, five years, 10 years, we're at 20 years and people are still discovering it. And I think that's amazing. Um, but I think that when you, you know, it's been a long time since I watched this for the first time, but even on repeat watches, I think that it's still really creepy. I think that the acting is amazing. And like we've been talking about, there are so many things going on within this story that, you know, you might see for the first time on your third or fourth watch, or you might delve into a little bit deeper and it might strike you a little bit differently than it did last time. So it's one of those films that, you know, just kind of keeps giving if you're the type of person who, you know, latches onto a detail and kind of starts analyzing it as you're going through. And then if you're a person who's just kind of along for the ride, I think it's a really, really creepy story and it's really well executed. I couldn't agree more. I, I think that's part of the power of it. And I think that while you could put, you know, the moniker or, or you know, let people know a little bit about the film before they go into it. I think that there's lots of people who would be surprised just going into it. I think maybe they'd be thrown off, you know, by the uh, the DV aspect to it. But we're talking about a film that's 20 years old. There's a certain point that we get 
in cinema that an older a movie is, you're able to automatically grant it um, certain, you know, um, not, not so many like mistakes or like give it a couple points on the side, but you give it the benefit of the doubt because of when things were made, you know, so you know that a movie from the 50s or 60s is going to have a certain look to it. A movie from the 70s and 80s is going to have a certain look to it. And so this movie, you know, the fact that it's 20 years old, they don't necessarily need to know about the fact that DB, but you have several movies that are coming around that time or several years later that are using the, those effects. So if you see it and they know that it's a little bit weird in their brain, they're like, oh, this movie's 20 years old, you know, mm-hmm. so, yeah. so so they have that that adjustment period in their brain that it doesn't seem as weird as it was as us who watched the movie when it came out and it was initially weird that that's become something that's become more acceptable for people because just the passage of time, which is a, is a weird thing to think about, but, but that it, it, I, so I think that people would jump into that better. And then because we mentioned that you had the, you know, entire decade that was focused on people making so many different, uh, found footage films and you still have people who are finding different ways to to work found footage into that that you have that uh, cinematic language of how certain things look that even though that's not the guiding force of the story of uh, the found footage aspect but you have people who've gone into and watched horror movies that have that look to them that they can be more accepting of the way it's shot but at the same time because of how it's shot and because it's shot in a place like Danvers, it has a very unique feel to it. You have to give the moniker and say that, oh, these other movies are found footage films to explain away what's going on in them. This movie that's about guys who are, you know, working on an asbestos crew and they're cleaning up this place in a mental asylum that you're actually able to see the majority of the mental asylum has a visual language all its own. And that that I think along with the, the the way that things go about and how this movie unfolds, because the pacing of the film isn't really like how horror movie, a lot of horror movies were are the, at that time. So all these different pieces that might not seem congruous actually working together is what makes something that that's unique and beautiful that I think definitely is deserving of the cult status today. Yeah. And, yeah, absolutely. And- and to one of the things you said, actually, it's pacing is very popular right now. The dread slow burn pacing is very big in horror. So, like, I think actually it should be just as relevant to to current fans. I mean, the, the biggest the biggest film that you have that exemplifies that slow burn uh, feeling is like I'm trying to think almost a decade after this when you have um, House of the Devil. Yeah. Which, which people at that yes. point are talking about being uh, more of a retro film because of the fact that it's going for the slow burn. And yet this mm-hmm. one's 2000, you know, 2001. Yeah. So we don't actually have any good <sighs> idea of when in film history the slow burn was supposed to be popular. <laughs> <laughs> we just kind of make it up. <laughs> But but no, but I but I think that I think that's a, another thing that shows kind of this being, you know, ahead of its time that it it doesn't necessarily influence that film, but it's doing it's tapping upon something that's in the water, you know, mm-hmm. that becomes more popular later on, which kind of adds to the cult aspect of the movie because it's doing these things 
that don't become readily common that other people are trying in general until the future. And it was trying, it wasn't trying to do that to fit into a, a mold. It just did it because that's what the director and the writers thought was a, a good way to make a film, which I think, you know, exemplifies movies that definitely get that, uh, you know, um, title of having a cult status. And it, and it's why you still have people who are, you know, revisiting this movie, years and years later i mean nolan was excited and told us several days ago that he was really excited to have the excuse to get the blu-ray of this movie (laughs) (laughs) and and who who is the studio that that put out the blu-ray screen factory did it screen factory that that's all you need Mm -hmm. to do i mean that you know screen factory really loves universal movies um so so there's that button in its cap but I mean, it's it's one of those that you know that you've hit a certain point uh, in your lineage of being a horror movie if you get that 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 release from yeah. Screen Factory. Yeah. And I think you know, I remember when that release happened. Like everyone who had seen the film and appreciated, everybody got excited. Like it was all over Twitter. Like we're finally getting this beautiful, you know, Blu-ray release of this film that has been so long overlooked. And then that spawned a lot of people to say, I've never seen this film. Do you recommend it? And everyone's like, yes. (laughs) And then you literally had a legion of people when it came out. And then a couple months later, like the first sale that happened to people were like snatching it up as quick as they could. (laughs) I mean, that's a sign. That's that's all it needs. Yeah. This film has definitely earned its place over the years. Yeah. I mean, it, like you said, we keep on being surprised that that it's been 20 years. And you know, Nolan started off by, you know, mentioning that, you know, having a modern feel. Both of you guys talking about having kind of a more modern feel. And I think if you're a 20-year-old film in the state of all the advancements that we have, you know, in the cinematic universe these days, that, that saying that a, a film like this can can still feel modern is I I think is all the testament you need. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So th- this is where we're going to come to the to the point where you guys are plugging where all the nice people and only the nice people on the internet can come and find your work. So Emily, we're going to start with you. Where can people find you out on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Horrorella Blog. I love to chat about movies and I post pictures of my kitties. So come hang out with me. That, that's all. You said animals and Twitter and people will be there. What about you, <laughs> Nolan? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Nolan underscore McBride or um, at our show's handle, which is uh, at Dead Ringers Pod. And yeah, you already mentioned it, but if you don't know Dead Ringers Pod, it's uh, the, the simple log line is we look at double features with uh, shared DNA, but distinct personalities um and that can vary as much or as little as we want it to um and yeah we just did uh, our most recent one was demons and popcorn and uh our upcoming episode is monkey shines and upgrades so you've got two very different ones there well since we're talking about dead ringers and because of a movie that you just mentioned i won't give away who it is but maybe just maybe the next episode of the show that's going to be recorded is on popcorn. Ooh. Nice. If you, if you do a little internet digging, you can easily probably find out that someone in the Kansas City area 
did a showing of popcorn and then you'd be able to suss out who the guests are going to be. But oh. that's, that's going to be the next episode that we do. We do here because that those individuals were like, this is what we want to do. And I said, that sounds great because not enough people are talking about popcorn. Yes. So I assumed okay. if their initials uh, are well, like we won't, a, we, won't a do, state. No, we won't do anything. We right, won't. Right, we won't. Yeah. We have anything away. But I mean, they've been on the show plenty of times, so that's that'll be <laughs> that'll be easy enough. Um, but you could. But find... you could schedule like a, a podcast double feature then so about popcorn. You could listen to Dead Ringers, and then you could listen to Horrorversary, and just have a fantastic night. There you go. There you go. I mean, they they should technically listen to your show before that time, since it's going to be a week or two. You know, (laughs) we want to get your numbers right away. You know, for since it's the most fresh episode. Um, Thanks, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Got to help everybody out. Um, You can easily find the show on Twitter at uh, Horrorversary, just spelled exactly like it sounds. I, I sometimes forget to tweet there, so I apologize. I'll get better at that. But I do retweet a lot, so there you go. Sometimes it might be you know, stuff that's celebrating anniversaries in general, or maybe it's for upcoming movies that we're going to be doing. You, you never know. Check it out. You can find me at Yo Adrian Taurus, where I also sometimes forget, you know, to to post stuff on Twitter, but I'm getting better at that. You know, that'll be a goal for 2021 is to to make sure that I put something of interest out there, which is funny because nowadays when it comes to Twitter, if you actually have something to say or you want to share, no one cares about it. But if you're like, hey, uh, it's 11 p.m. at night and I'm watching (laughs) session nine, then people are like, I'm going to like that. And you're like, well, none of this makes sense, but (laughs) that's how it works. My my favorite is when when you uh, you tweet something out and it's like no one pays attention to it. And all of a sudden it's like. 24 hours and and then people start liking it and you're like oh so the timeline algorithm decided this is when you're going to pop up in everybody's feed yep twitter (laughs) twitter allows us to speak and sometimes it shuts us up you know sometimes it doesn't care (laughs) sometimes twitter is the one that says should you be tweeting this right now never (laughs) to never to the people that it should actually be asking that question to Uh, I just thought of Twitter should have a feature where like when it's trying to discourage you from writing a bad tweet, it just keeps saying it's a draft and to give up. <laughs> so it, it should be the new new form of Clippy popping up saying, do you really want to write that? <laughs> yes. Yes, I do. Emily, Nolan, I can't thank you guys enough for coming on to the show. This was a great time. Thanks yes. so much for having us. This was a blast. Yes, that thank was the, you. The most genuine pause there that that it, it it definitely didn't sound like I was miming to to feign praise over here. So, well, I think that the problem is that we are both <laughs> trying to be polite and let the other one talk, and then no one talks, and <laughs> so you know. Hey, the best feature of podcasts is when nothing is said. <laughs> well, <laughs> until next time, everyone. Be nice to each other. <laughs>